way through a mini-series, which we've called Living by Faith. And for the most part of this series, Paul has been contrasting faith and the works of the law or the works of the Torah, the works of Moses, the works of the Old Testament. And this morning, he wants to show us why faith is supreme, okay? He wants to show us the supremacy of faith. He's going to take these two ways, and he's going to show the priority and the more excellent way, to borrow his language in 1 Corinthians, of the way of faith. But before we get in this, I found myself as I was looking at this passage this week going, all right, so what does this matter for us? We've talked about the fact that in Paul's day in the church of Galatia, there were Jewish Christians who were coming in and demanding that those who were not Jewish, who had become believers in Christ, would be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's the whole reason this letter is being written, to respond to that issue. But the honest truth is, none of us this morning have probably had that conversation right? For the men of this church, nobody's ever come up to you and gone, oh, you're believing in Jesus. Have you gotten circumcised yet? Right? It's just not a conversation we have. So the question always becomes, how is this the word of God for us today? And I want to show you this morning that underlying these questions of the Galatians that you may not have are some really significant questions that we all have, okay? Specifically, what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with everything that happens before Jesus? How do we read about the, not just the stories of Israel, but the laws of Israel? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? If God has come in Jesus Christ and granted us forgiveness and salvation and righteousness, why do the rules matter anymore? These become really important questions. And what Paul wants us to do this morning is realize that when we read the Old Testament, we must read it as Christians, okay? Which if I had the time this morning, I would show you is just another way of saying, if we're to read the Old Testament, we must read it as Jesus did, okay? But let's focus on the text this morning, picking up in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels, by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin, 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would keep one of your promises this morning. You told your disciples in the Gospel of John that you would send your spirit and that your spirit would guide them in all truth. And so we pray that you would guide us in all truth this morning. We thank you for your word and for your desire that you would be known by us and that we would live in close and loving relationship with you as illuminated by the truth of your word, your promises, and your commands. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot in this passage. In fact, I think it would be justifiable, especially for a Bible nerd like myself, to have slowed down and covered these verses in three or four, maybe five weeks instead of one. But the problem is sometimes we lose the forest through the trees. Sometimes we're looking so closely, you know, through a magnifying glass, we can't actually see how everything fits together. Okay. And so I want you to see the big picture this morning, and that means we're going to smooth over some things which conveniently are terribly debated. And so it'll save us some time not having to talk about all of them. In other words, I want to focus on the lowest common reality of Paul's teaching this morning, not the debatables, not the things where we're like, I have no idea what that means, but the things that are clear and obvious. And here is what is clear and obvious for Paul and should be for us this morning, that the law, and that is a broad, multivaried term that means the commandments of the Old Testament, the Old Testament itself, the old covenant that God made with Israel through Moses, Okay, but when we put them all together, the law has a place in our lives, but we must keep it in its place. Okay. And so, he takes these two things, the promise and the law, faith and works of the law, and he sets them next to each other. He compares them and he explains them and he shows some significant differences. And here is the first one. The law came late. Okay? Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, Let me illustrate from normal human relationships. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Okay? Now, one of the ways we can think about this is if a guy draws up a will. Right? If you make your will and you get it signed and notarized and all of that, somebody can't come in after you're dead and say, oh, actually, we'd like to add some stipulations to that. It's none of your business, right? You don't have any rights to change what's already been ratified, okay? Or let me give you a different example. Envision a coupon, a coupon that all common sense would tell you this only applies to five or less items but they don't put it on the coupon, right? 
What do all of our bargain warriors demand? You keep the coupon. You have to keep the language of the coupon. You can't tell me what you meant to say, because here is my little contract cut out of the daily news that says no stipulations about how I use this coupon, right? Okay, that's the idea here. Paul is saying, when we look at the Old Testament story itself, when we begin with God's very plan, which doesn't start in Exodus, but in Genesis, which doesn't start with Moses, but with Abraham, we find a promise of God without stipulation. We find a coupon for what God is providing without the additional requirements that show up in the law. Notice what he says. He says in verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, which, by the way, is not a word, and that's his point. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Now, in English, the plural of offspring is offspring. Or, to use the word he actually uses, the plural of seed is seed. Okay? Uh, in the Greek, that is true as well. In the Hebrew, that is true as well. Paul is not making a grammatical point, but a theological one. But what he's basically saying is the promises that are given to Abraham are primarily about Jesus and not merely the Jews. Okay? When it says, and to your descendant, God is speaking about Jesus. Now, that's a striking statement. Paul says, look, I know that you think you are the descendants of Abraham, you are the offspring, you are the inheritors of the promise, you Jewish man, you Jewish woman. He says, but that's not right. Jesus is the inheritor of all those things. Okay. Now, for one, why does Paul feel comfortable doing that? Because that's what Jesus said. Okay. If you go back and read the Gospels, Jesus himself, speaking to the Pharisees, the primary interpreters of the Old Testament in his known world, he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. Which is a striking thing for a man to say 400 years after the last book of the Old Testament was written and say, yeah, I'm the main character. I'm the focal point. In fact, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I've come to throw out the law, but I have come to fulfill it. Okay. Jesus saw his part as being a primary focal point. And so Paul takes that and he says, all right, so when God makes promises about Abraham's descendant, he's not speaking about a people, but a person. He's speaking about Jesus. And that's good news for us, because if anyone is in Christ, we will see in chapter 4, then we also get to enjoy the inheritance. Okay? In other words, he's saying there's an open door for non-Jewish people because God was doing something bigger than just for the Jews. Now to read very quickly ahead, because some of you will have questions, when Paul says a few verses later that the law was established with an intermediary, which implies more than one, but God is one, that seems to be what he's touching on. There's not just a God for the Jews and another God for the Gentiles. One God, one plan of salvation, one universal purpose. Okay. And so what he's saying here is when God came and made the promises to Abraham, 
He gave them up front and completely without the stipulations that show up in the law. Okay. Now, this is really good news. Because what do we find in the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel? We find failure. We find unfaithfulness. Does Israel keep the law? No. In fact, they don't keep it for so many generations that God ends up removing them from the land of promise. But that doesn't nullify the promise any more than the giving of these rules would nullify the promise. Okay. Now, one of the things that this should tell you right up front, again, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, is that promise and faith, God provides a Savior, and we respond in faith, and that's what fixes things. That is God's plan A, not plan B. Before the law was given, before the Ten Commandments were written, before the Tablets of Stone and Charlton Heston, okay, we have the promise. And they are very different. The language of the promise, you can read it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, is God saying, I will. I will. And what is the language of the law? Thou shalt thou shalt not. Okay? One is about what God will do, and the other is about what we should do or not do. Okay? But the language of salvation is the language of promise. So much so that, as he points out here, it's 430 years later. So it's not that God comes back a day later to Abraham and goes, you know, I really should have brought this up, but there is some fine print to our relationship. There are expectations. There are things that go on. Eventually, he calls Abraham to circumcise his children. That's significant. But none of that changes the initial promises. There was no fine print on the promises. And when the law finally does come, it comes 430 years later. And guess what? Even there in that story, the story of Israel, what do we find? we find that God's grace and his work leads and the law follows. Does God come to a bunch of slaves in Egypt and go, hey, I've got these rules and if you'll keep them, I'll save you? No. He just shows up, delivers them, and says, now, if you're going to be my people, here's what this looks like. Okay. The Exodus is a model of God's preemptive redemption. But the Jews... In Paul's day, in the church of Galatia are coming in and saying, you missed a step. Yes, you believe in Jesus, but you've got to go back to the law. You have to go back to the beginning. You have to go through the right door, and then you can enjoy everything Jesus has to offer. And Paul goes, the right door? This is door number two. What about door number one? What about the initial planned entrance? Okay. And so the law, or uh, faith, the way of faith, is supreme because it's first. Whatever the law means, it doesn't remove that first place posture plan. Okay. Let's just look very quickly just to nail it down at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. Okay. What is he saying there? 
This is an either-or scenario, not a both-and scenario. Either the way that we experience all that God has promised to Abraham and in Christ through promise and faith or through law. They're diametrically opposed. They're antithetical positions. Okay. So, the law came later. Second, the law was temporary. I'm going to start reading here in verse 19, and I want you to listen to the chronological language. And I won't make it hard on you. I'm not going to hide it. I'm really going to hit it. I want you to notice how important time is to Paul's argument. Okay, listen to verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay, look at uh, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, past tense, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Okay, Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Sometimes we read the laws in the Old Testament. They're written very straightforward and very broad. And they say things like, don't eat these types of animals. And then there are other things where it says, don't murder anybody. Or this is what sexual fidelity looks like in the Christian life, or whatever it is. And sometimes people look at us and they go, it sure seems like you don't play fair. It sure seems like you pick the rules which are important to you and you ignore others. Okay. Now we need to recognize that that question is ultimately a question about the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. Okay. In other words, that's not a tertiary question about how we read the Bible. That's a, what is the gospel question? What has God accomplished in Jesus Christ? Okay. But also, there's a logical fallacy in that question that I want to point out this morning. To me, it's like when you're crossing a street and you see the sign that says walk and don't walk. And it says don't walk, and so your child next to you is like, why can't we cross the street? And you point and you say, see that sign? It means don't walk. And then the sign changes, and you start walking, and the child goes, hey, wait a minute. You said we couldn't go. And it's like, no, but the sign has changed. Okay. This was a temporary issue, and now it's over. Paul is making the same argument about the law, and for a committed, trained under one of the greatest rabbis of his day, and I'm not talking greatest from my opinion, I'm talking about Jewish history greatest. Gamaliel is a known name in Jewish circles. For him to say the law was temporary is a big deal. But what is he suggesting? He's suggesting that God had a purpose for the law in Israel. It wasn't just some side thing. It was part of the plan, but now the plan is fulfilled. Whatever the law was supposed to do, it's done. And somehow, notice that that has to do with the coming of faith. Okay. The coming of Jesus. Now, here's an illustration that N.T. Wright uses, and I think it's a very good one. 
God's whole plan in the Old Testament is to fix the big problem of what's gone wrong with humanity. The Bible just labels it with that three little word, sin. But it is pervasive. It is destructive. And it culminates always, consistently, regularly, every time in death. Okay. And so, the way he's going to go about that is to bring a cure to the disease we call sin. What God does in the Old Testament law is he gathers together a group of doctors, and those doctors are going to be the ones that discover the cure. Okay. And so he puts them in quarantine. In fact, think of how much of the Old Testament law is basically be different and distant from other people. Don't eat like these people. Don't eat with those people. Live differently. And what that does effectively in Israel, even though it doesn't lead to righteousness, it does restrain them from a whole lot of awful. And it does preserve them as a people all the way through God's plan. Okay, so here's these doctors. They're working in a lab. They've cut themselves off from the world. They are just as vulnerable to the disease as anyone else. And truth be told, in this case, quarantine is not going to save them from it. Okay? But it does give them the time and the safety to develop a cure. And Paul says to these people who have come into the Jews, and he says, We've already got the cure. Why are you still quarantining? All of you have been inoculated. Why are you hiding in your homes? Okay. God's goal in the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, is particular for a universal reason. It focuses on a single nation and a single people so that they might carry the message of what God did in the midst of those people to the ends of the earth. But we are now in phase two of God's plan. Okay. And phase two means phase one is over. The quarantine is ended. And so the law here, as Jesus said, has been fulfilled. As Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. You know what's a really good illustration of this? A fascinating single sentence in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is dying on a cross, being crucified outside the city as a criminal. And while he hangs there, in the temple, this place of the presence of God, the place where the sacrifices are administered, where the priests go, in the temple something happens. You see, between the most holy place, think the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Think of the place that's only entered one day a year on the Day of Atonement by one person in Israel, the, holy, uh, the high priest, and always with blood and with incense, okay? It's a place of danger because God's presence is there. And so because of that, there's this curtain that divides holy from not holy, divides the presence of God from humanity. And Mark tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Okay. Now, that's a fascinating thing for a thousand reasons. One of them is this curtain is layers and layers of fabric. It's six inches thick. Okay. If you guys have ever seen, you know, Magnus von Magnuson and the Strongest Man in the World competition, they're not pulling this, you know, curtain into, into shreds. It's not going to happen. It also says that it happens from top to bottom, right? 
But here's the significance of it. The problem that separates mankind from God, the sin issue that makes that curtain necessary, no longer necessary. The veil has been torn. In fact, the author of Hebrews, who does a really good job of helping us think through how the Old Testament relates to Jesus, he says, we now have this anchor beyond the veil. Okay, it's as if our very being is centered behind the curtain now, not in front of it. Okay, it's as if now our primary go-to place of existence is with God. And we have this kind of umbilical cord relationship that puts us out in the world at large. Okay, it's different. It's changed. And so he criticizes those who don't understand that the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ in such a way that the book has been closed. But here's the third reason why faith is, is supreme. It's because faith and the promise is about righteousness, but the law is about sin. Again, let's read then in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. This is one of those places where I wish Paul said a little more. Sometimes he's tremendously wordy. In fact, we don't always catch this in the English, but some of his sentences are such long run-on sentences, they go on for 12, 13, 14 verses, like the first half of Ephesians chapter 1. And then there's other places where he just makes this aside, like we all know, and we're like, tell us a little more, Paul. Give us a little bit more to go on. What does he mean here that the law was added because of transgressions? Now, Romans covers some of the same territory as Galatians, and Paul puts it a little bit differently there in a way that I think is helpful. This is what he says. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, let's pick up in verse 19, because I think it's helpful. Now, we know that whatever the law speaks it speaks to those who are under the law. Do you remember that language from Galatians? Under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Okay, second note I want you to make there. Is the law there just for Jews or for the whole world? No, the law does something for everybody. But what does it do? Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That means made righteous since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When Paul says the law was added because of transgression, he means that it was given because of the reality of sin. Okay. And this is the debate that Paul is having with these um, troublers of the Galatians church. They are saying, we need the law for righteousness. And Paul is saying, the law's never been about righteousness. The law doesn't make one righteous. Instead, it reveals unrighteousness. Okay. Now, that's a good thing. Being able to see something's wrong is a gift. And the law was a gift. But the law doesn't make a lawmaker. It just shows you when you are a lawbreaker. 
Even Martin Luther King Jr., who we all know really fought for good legislation, he said the law cannot change the heart. Now he goes on and he says, but it can restrain the heartless. And that's why law is good, right? It holds back, it limits, it restricts sin. It gives us a codified way to bring consequence to bear, to protect us from the failures of others. All good. But it does not make us good. It does not make us right. Let me give you another illustration, this one from the book of James. James says, if somebody reads the commandments of God and then goes away from them not doing what they say, he says it's like somebody who looks in a mirror and then forgets what he looks like. Okay, let me tell you this. A mirror will not make you attractive. In fact, a mirror won't make you clean. If you go to a mirror and you go, wow, I've got mud all over my face, and then you go out into the world, you still have mud all over your face. But it can make you go, I should wash my face. That brings us back to the world of promise. That brings us back to the need for a savior. The law was added because of transgression, or as Paul said in Romans, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law shows us we need Jesus. It is diagnosis, not cure. And the truth is, if you're one of those people this morning who struggles to see how bad you really are, how problematic your sin nature is, how deep the rabbit hole of your own fallen condition goes, I bet that you have never tried with all of your heart to keep the rules. Paul generally saw himself as a righteous dude, his language. He kept the law. He knew it. He devoted his life to following it. But then he noticed the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. And that one's interesting because all of the other ones are very externalized. You shall not murder. That's something that happens outside your body. Don't steal your neighbor's cow outside your body. You shall not covet. That's all the way down in the heart. And Paul went, you know what? My whole life I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen. To the best of my ability, I've never told a lie. But what have I wanted? What have I thought? Right? As soon as he internalized the law, which again, he gets from Jesus. Jesus says, if the word says, you shall not murder, it means you shall not harbor hatred in your heart and wish somebody wasn't alive. He says, when the law says, you shall not commit adultery, that if you have desired someone who is not your spouse in a sexual manner, you have broken that commandment. And so the law is good because it shows the need, as Paul said in Romans, it condemns the whole world under sin and stops every mouth. No one will stand before God, open the Bible, and say, you see, I have lived this way, I have been righteous. Instead, what's going to happen is people are going to stand before God, he's going to operate as judge, he's going to open his word, and he's going to say, you see, you have not been righteous. And again, that's good. James's point about that mirror is not, forget about the mud. 
In fact, he says, be doers of the word. But the law can't make you a doer. It can't transform your heart. It can't bring about. The transition from the covenants, old to new, is the transition from what was written on tablets of stone, Paul says to the Corinthian church, to being written on the flesh of your heart itself. Externally imposed, internally empowered. But that means that for us, the law still has a valuable place in our lives. Okay? Remember, as Paul has already pointed out, God's whole goal is to make us righteous. The goal hasn't changed. It's not that God has said, you know what, I love people so much that I'm just going to ignore sin. No, sin is so serious that Jesus was crucified and bore the whole consequence and judgment of God's righteous wrath. It's a big deal. Sometimes we don't feel that way about our own sins, but it's easier to measure in the sins of those against us, especially the big ones. We all know how hard it is to forgive. Why is it so hard to forgive? Because sin is significant. It's serious and it's damaging. It's destructive and it brings death. Christians, you should read the Old Testament law. You should read the commands of Christ and his apostles. And you should weigh your life before them and say, is this true of me? Now, this is one of my personal keys to reading the Bible well. Read it looking for what's wrong, not what's right. Whenever we get into a mode that says, all right, it says do these things, check, 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 I'm doing all of them, I'm fine for the day. Effectively, what you say is, today I don't need Jesus. Maybe I did last Wednesday. I might tomorrow, but today I'm good. There's a misunderstanding of the significance of sin. You need to read the Bible and say, where is this true of me? You need to look. You need to seek. You need to ask follow-up questions. Okay? If not, you're very likely letting yourself get away with murder. Okay? But most importantly... The Bible doesn't exist to tell you you are righteous, but to tell you you need righteousness and to tell you about the one who gives it to you. Okay. And so we need the law, but the law was designed to lead us unto Christ. And that's the last thing here. Okay. So we've seen that the law came later. We've seen that the law was temporary. We've seen that the law was about sin and not about righteousness. It wasn't an alternative means of salvation, but something to help us diagnose our need for a Savior. And then finally, the law leads us to Christ. Look again at what he says in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. That word there for until, when we read it, we just read that as a timestamp, right? Okay, so this is the time of the law. Boom, Christ has come, no longer the time of the law. 
But the Greek word carries more nuance, nuance than this, and one of the ways you can translate it is unto, not until. In that case here, we were enslaved under the law unto Christ. That makes the law not just a holding pattern, but productive. It does something. Okay. It moves us in a direction. Unto Christ. And actually, the metaphor that Paul uses here when he mentions the guardian speaks volumes on this. Now, just an aside. We're going to come back to this metaphor and explore it very heavily in January. After today, we're going to pause in Galatians and we're going to walk through the life of Abraham all the way through this year. Talk about, all right, how does faith actually work in life? Okay, it'll be good. But in the meantime, this word he uses for guardian is the pedagogue. Now, we don't have those anymore. But effectively, in the area between a child's nurse and adulthood, the pedagogue was the stand-in tutor. Okay? He had a role to watch over, to control, and to cultivate a child until he was an adult. Okay? In fact, the idea here is tied into the idea of inheritance. Okay? In the Roman world, when you became an adult, that's when you received all the rights of your father. And the pedagogue only had authority over you until you were a citizen, until you had inherited the rights of your father. Okay. That's how the law worked. It gave guidance, it caused restraint. It was an adolescent Israel that was under the law. But now the inheritance has been doled out in Christ. And you may, and you should, if you grew up with a pedagogue, with a tutor, call them up for advice occasionally. But they don't call the shots anymore. That's the whole point of what it means to be an adult. If you're incapable of calling the shots now, they've failed as a pedagogue. That was the goal, to make an independent adult human being. Okay. In this way, the law was to lead unto Christ. Okay, and it does this in a couple of different ways, and all of these are of value to us and not just the Jews. First off, the commandments of God reveal the character of God. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you suffer like I do from the yabbits, right? And you think, well, there's a few laws in there that I'm not so sure I like God's character if that's the case. Set that aside for a second. That's another conversation. But when we look at the primary commandments, take the ones that you know you agree with, what do they say about the person who demands them? What do they reveal about God? Why is he so committed against violence, specifically murder? It's because he knows that power can be poorly stewarded and that not all of us are equal in the power we have. And so God protects those who are powerless. If you read the Old Testament, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, if you wade through the depth, you will be staggered by how much importance God puts on the oppressed, on the marginalized, on the weak, on the foreigner, on the widow, on the orphan. God is concerned about these things. So the first thing the law shows us is the character of God. 
The second thing that it shows us is that we are not like God. It shows us that our character is different from that. It shows us that although we have tried in the past and are trying today, we still struggle to be the people that we should be. But it also shows you the character of Christ. Jesus makes an outlandish claim in the Gospel of John that none of us can make. He says, I always do the things that please the Father. Jesus' life was the law incarnate. The very character of God lived out in all of the circumstances and frailty of a human life to perfection. Jesus fulfilled the law. It's not just that he died for your disobedience. He lived obediently on your behalf. And so it draws us to Christ. The law leads unto Christ. It's fulfilled in him, and not just the laws, but the sacrifices and the festivals. Exodus says, Passover lamb. And John says, the true lamb, pointing to Jesus. Right? Exodus says, appoint a priesthood. And Hebrews says, the true priest in Jesus. Over and over and over again. Exodus is about God's deliverance. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, is speaking to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration about his coming Exodus, the real one. And so when we read the Bible, it should lead us to Christ and not away from him. And here's the problem with moralism. Here's the problem with those of us who say, I'm good enough on my own. Effectively, the commandments of God become a reason to avoid him, to keep him at a distance, to be independent. But God's whole point and purpose of revealing himself in his word, and of sending Jesus to an undeserving person is so that we might know him, to love and be loved by him, to be in relationship with him. Parents raise children to independence, but God created mankind to be, to be dependent upon him, to need him, because we are not God. And that's so good. Let me close this way. Tim Keller illustrates this idea by talking about a child who grows up in his grandmother's care and is going to inherit everything the grandmother owns. And she lays out some lists of rules for life. And he keeps them to the T. Always does them. But he never calls. He never goes to visit. The core commandment given in the Old Testament is the one that Jesus exposits, that he says is the greatest of all the commandments, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Any supposed obedience that absolves you of that love or paints a picture of a God who is an unloving tyrant, Martin Luther, this is what changed his life. As a monk, he hated God because God was a grueling taskmaster who demanded much and gave nothing. 
until he was reading in the book of Romans chapter 1, and he said that he read where it said that righteousness comes through faith, and suddenly he saw everything we talked about this morning, that the dominion of the law had ended, and the gift of Jesus had been given, and that God was a gracious father saying, I have made the way, I will has made it so you may. And this is the final purpose of the law. We are no longer under the dominion of the law, but we should be under its direction. We should care what it teaches as it describes a life of love and health and human flourishing. But we are no longer its slave, serving, you know, a God who asks too much. We are the children of the loving Father who wisely imparts to us the right way to go and walks that road with us empowers us. Jesus said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And I know in the modern world we just think of eggs, right? His yoke was over easy, maybe. But the idea of a yoke, right, is an animal carrying a load. And here's what we miss. A yoke in the ancient world was a two-animal device. And Jesus says, come and carry my yoke because I'm right there next to you, taking the full weight That's why Clarissa read this morning that what is God given through belief in the promise? The empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Peter says that it's God's divine nature imparted to us to make us like God. That's how Jesus saves today. Not just forgiving our sins in the past, but empowering us for obedience now. John says it this way. This is love. Not that we love God, but he has loved us and sent his son to die for us. Let's pray. Father, we want to be like those that Paul tells young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, who use the law lawfully, that use it for what it's for. I pray that we wouldn't make the mistake of cheap grace that abandons the law and says, since Jesus did it all, I never need open the Old Testament. I never need think of any command or responsibility that God lays upon me. But instead, Lord, we would see the law as an invitation, as a mirror that shows us where you still desire to work where you still are in the process of sanctifying us and making us like you. An invitation that says, come, have your sins sins cleansed and forgiven. Come, experience my empowerment for righteousness. Come and live life with me in close relationship. Father, we thank you for this big, long, complex plan that begins with Abraham, that goes through Moses, and that culminates in Jesus. Let us not forget how we got here, but let us not go back. We just ask that you would be with us this morning. We give you 
permission to lay your finger on the places in our heart, even this morning, that are not right, where we know your word and your word condemns our actions. But we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation for us. But I pray, Lord, that we would come to the Son to be cleansed by his blood, that we would come to the Spirit to be filled afresh with your power, and that we would come to the Father walks with us on the long road home. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.